Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 136 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases again today, and uh, two are from the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, 5th District. The first is uh, Richards versus Clemens. Uh, the second case today is from the 7th Circuit, ZH, or not ZH, <laughs> when you go look it up, versus Garcia, we'll explain that one. Uh, and the third case today is also from the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, Country Mutual Insurance Company versus Zoo. Is that right? Zoo too? I, I I'm not sure. It's X U. No. That's XU. that's I, I I I am I I can't pronounce. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how we trans we we have a very difficult time transliterating Chinese into English. We do. I'll, I'll, I I think that that's a fair statement, and it's yeah. our fault, not theirs. Uh, so yeah. No, I, just, I agree. There's, there's limited. There's only there's limited sounds in our language that just don't seem to appear in the Chinese, and we don't have no. that are in the Chinese language. No, and if I, I you know, if my son was still living at home, or if I talked to him today, I may have asked him how to pronounce it, but he, sure. I did not chat with him. He was a Mandarin major. With that, let's turn to our first case, and it's a law school civil procedure exam question for law students, uh, for the purposes of personal and for journalism. lawyers too, and for lawyers too. This is this is an excellent uh, final examination uh, question for for Civ Pro. Uh, what is the residence of a member of the military? That is essentially the question that will be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides Richards versus Clemens, which was argued last week. The defendant, who is from Pennsylvania and has a Pennsylvania driver's license, but has never been registered to vote anywhere, was stationed at a base in South Dakota when she was involved in an accident in Missouri that allegedly injured the plaintiff. Before being stationed in South Dakota and living on base there, the defendant was stationed at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois and purchased a home in in Illinois that she still owns. The plaintiff sued the defendant in Illinois, and the circuit court denied her motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction, finding that based upon the home ownership in Illinois, she was an Illinois resident. The defendant now appeals. Under Illinois law, a person has only one residence, and at her deposition, the defendant testified that she did not intend to return to Pennsylvania or remain in South Dakota when her enlistment ended, she has also not lived at the home in Illinois since her transfer to South Dakota. This is only a question of general jurisdiction. There's nothing the defendant did that relates to the plaintiff's injury occurred in Illinois. Counsel for plaintiff asserted that the standard of review was abuse of discretion, not de novo, which raises another issue to be resolved. Uh, but given that this motion was decided entirely on the papers, uh, the standard here probably is, in fact, de novo. Pat, tell us about oral argument. It's an interesting Civ Pro uh, issue. Thanks, Dan. And I think there's a, it's important to get a couple principles out first, but it, it, we'll get to the principles in a moment after we discuss the standard of review. The court was, as, was seemed to be a bit incredulous at the idea that this was an abuse of discretion standard, considering that this was decided entirely on the papers. Um, I, I, think it'll, I think it'll resolve the issue and make it very clear this is a de novo standard. 
Um, this was not an evidentiary hearing. This was not a dispute over, uh, you know, this wasn't a swearing contest. This was a deposition of, they took the deposition of the uh, plaintiff, which you're allowed to do, or defendant rather, which you're allowed to do, limited to the issues of personal jurisdiction under Supreme Court Rule 201L. Um, and that's important in Illinois because if you raise any issue other than personal jurisdiction, you waive personal jurisdiction. Illinois got rid of the distinction, or got rid of the special and limited appearance only 20 years ago, shortly before I started practicing. And so, but we still have it kind of in that when you file your motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction or for improper service under, under Section 301 of the Code of Civil Procedure, you only raise those issues. Now, sometimes there's a way to read the rule. You can do more than that. But no, I don't know any, very many people that do it because it's playing with fire. This is mm -hmm. not like in federal court or in other states where you file all your stuff, venue, forum, substantive attacks on the complaint, uh, uh, claims of lack of personal jurisdiction and so forth. You do one thing. You file your challenge of personal jurisdiction and you leave the rest of that stuff to later. All right. So with that out of the way, um, the principles. The first principle is under Illinois law, a person is a resident where they intend to remain. So it's a very subjective type of analysis, number one. Number two, a person only has one residence. What makes this case and what I think is dispositive here is the fact that she's in the military. Yep. When, she, when she enlisted in the military, she was, in, she was a Pennsylvania resident. She then was uh, stationed for relevance here. She may have been stationed other places. She may have done boot camp somewhere else, but... For relevance here, she was stationed in Illinois. She purchased a home. She has some stuff there, but she hasn't lived there for a long time. She then moved to South, or get, shouldn't move, gets moved to South Dakota. And I think part of the reason why we treat military members uh, like that is because, well, uh, the, we have the term army brat because they right. move all over the place. I mean, the it's military. It, right you know, is, is uh, serving its purposes, not the purposes of its members. And we're going to move you, you know, wherever, you know, Guam, Okinawa, <laughs> Germany, Italy, wherever. One of the 750 bases the United States has worldwide. I did not misspeak. 750 bases worldwide. Which the is discussion. That's a discussion amazing. for a different day. The United right. States has more foreign bases than the rest of the world combined. Right. Just as it has more aircraft carriers than the rest of the world combined. That's a, as I said, that's a discussion for a different day. Draw your own conclusions from those two facts. Um, the uh, so she when this incident occurred, they didn't refer to what this app what happened here between the plaintiff and the defendant. It seems to be yeah. more than your, more than a car accident. Um, they referred to it as an incident. So we just don't, it's. So we don't really know what it is. I'm not sure it's relevant. In any event, it occurred in Missouri, not in Illinois. And she was living right. on base in South Dakota at the time of this incident. So she gets sued in St. Clair County. There was a question. I got a ton of comments on my post on this. I had 46 comments or something. Um, I got ratio, uh, only a good kind of ratio in this case. And uh, lots of comments from people that had served in the military and and, and so forth. And so, so she... Um, has this house, she she pays tax on it. And that was one thing that they, the plants are, oh, she pays tax. They're like, she owns property. 
course she pays she has to pay tax or, or else she won't have the property. She won't have the like property. That. So it's, yeah. if she had paid income tax in Illinois, that would be a different kettle of fish. You know, you, you know, where you pay tax doesn't really tell you very much. She earned the money in South Dakota. I don't know if South Dakota has an income tax or not. I doubt it, but let's suppose they do. I don't know if she, you know, her military income would be subject to that or not. I presume it is. And she, and so she would pay tax there because that's where it was earned. If I, you know, I'm an Illinois resident. There's uh, sometimes I wonder the wisdom of that, but I am. And uh, if I, if I started working, uh, let's suppose I started flipping burgers in Indiana, I, that income would be subject to Indiana tax, not right. Illinois tax. Um, so I think it's generally where you, where you earned the money. That's the issue. So that doesn't, even if she had paid income tax, really not relevant. That she pays tax in Illinois, that doesn't, you know, that's property tax. So what? He made a deal out of, well, she keeps this property and I wouldn't keep this property because taxes are so high, yada, yada. Maybe it's an investment, one of the justices right. suggested. Who knows? She got maybe the house. She maybe she, before she left. Yeah, maybe she couldn't sell it. Didn't want it. No one else, no one else wanted to buy the house either. What's she going to do? So she... But she hasn't lived there, and she certainly doesn't intend to coming back to it. So she can't. I don't see how she could possibly be seen to intend to remain there. So she has a Pennsylvania driver's license, and another inquiry was, you know, as Dan mentioned, she does not register to vote anywhere. I have some cases where people where they uh, where they live in different parts of the city can affect the rating of their insurance because different zip codes get rated at different rates or whether they were needed to be disclosed on a policy or so forth. And I, I've got a case right now where the person is registered to vote in a, a ward that they don't, they, they claim they don't live in. Uh, I had another case recently where the person claimed she lived in Wisconsin, but was registered to vote in Illinois and voted in Illinois, even though she claimed she was a Wisconsin resident. Oops. Um, and yeah. That, that case, her lawyer dropped her pretty quickly thereafter when it was clear that she had committed a crime. Uh, that wasn't the only one that she had committed. She also had taken a PPP loan in Illinois on a business that doesn't exist, even though she lived in Wisconsin. There was that one too. So we had two, we had two fat, we had two criminal, I had her an examination under oath admit to two crimes. That was fun. Uh, you know, so that the lawyers dropped her. So not surprisingly, good, good, good for them. Once that became obvious that she had misrepresented where she lived and, what she was doing, where she lived. Um, so a, a person, when they enter the military, I think they are a resident of that place because the military can send you God knows where and does. And I, I think she, I think she's a resident of Pennsylvania. There's no, the case has no connection whatsoever to Illinois. I, I, I there's no, there's no specific jurisdiction. As Dan said, it's only a general jurisdiction case. Um, I think it's getting reversed. I think we'll talk about that later, but a very interesting procedural question, uh, but one that I think has a pretty simple answer given the facts. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? I, I agree with everything you said. And, and uh, yeah, we don't, we don't know, like I said, we don't know what the accident is. We don't know why she was on leave from South Dakota, any of these facts. It doesn't really matter though. I think you're right. I think that this is getting reversed and you know, that, you know, for those that are going to vote in, in the uh, mayoral election, you know, this is the uh, Paul Vellis issue that's been raised, that he has, uh, you know, Palos Heights, that he got all of his, uh, when, when he when he donated money, the tax uh, deductions he takes, everything else, claims he doesn't live there, he lives in the city in some apartment somewhere. Um, so yeah, he, has an interesting, uh, he has an interesting arrangement with his wife. 
Uh, yeah. Apparently, he and his wife haven't lived together in a very long time, and Maybe. for whatever yeah. reason, they have he he keeps that as his address, even though he lives. I mean, he's speaking of being been all over the place. I mean, he's been in New Orleans yeah. and yeah. Philadelphia, yeah. and and here. I mean, he's been he's been a number of different places in, in executive positions in government, um, leading schools and so forth. Um, so yeah, it, I. <laughs> I, we had that issue with Rahm Emanuel. Um, right. I was going to say the same thing, and he, he had rented you know, an apartment or a condo, whatever. Um, same well, type yeah, of thing. So. Well, when he went to go be chief of staff in in in, uh, in D.C. and then came back to run, well, he still had his house in Chicago. I mean, yeah. he was never intending to remain in D.C. I mean, it was ridiculous that the idea that he wasn't a and it was a huge deal, and it was I, it seemed to be somewhat close as to whether he was going to succeed on that issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was suspicious because it wasn't, it wasn't the exact same house. He had sold it or something. Yeah. But in any event, the this idea he wasn't coming to Chicago, coming back to Chicago was ridiculous. Yeah. And, and a few years ago, uh, I think when I was CBA president, uh, the, the judicial evaluation committee, there was some controversy about a Cook County judge and had, had a place where his wife and kid, you know, lit, whatever it was, I forget. And uh, same type of thing, you know, it's, and like you said, the whole decision in those cases goes to, you know, where's your license? Where are you registered to vote? Are you getting your bills? Are you, you know, all that stuff, you know, IRS address, all those things. Wait, so, wait, wait, where'd you file your tax? What's on your W-2 right. or W-4 so, and so forth? Yeah. But so yeah, this case, yeah, I just don't see there's, there's absolutely no connection. She just happens to have a house down there, which doesn't seem doesn't seem like that's enough. Like you said, it's not income tax. It's not, she, she had no presence in the state at all, really. Not at the time of the accident, which is what's yeah. relevant and certainly not now. Um, so it would be interesting if she had lived there at the time of the accident. That, yes, that would be different. That might have changed, maybe. That, you know, I don't know if that would have changed the facts or not. Uh, it, would but have, it would, it would have, it would have put a different gloss on it perhaps. Exactly. That doesn't seem to be the facts. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with ZH or not ZH. Dan will tell us about that uh, for segment two of episode 136. We're back for segment two of episode 136 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And two of the three advocates who argued before judges Easterbrook, Hamilton, and Lee last week in ZH versus Garcia really annoyed the court. The first counsel for the plaintiff appellant could not provide any order, both either from the district court or the circuit court, that allowed his client to proceed via pseudonym. And Judge Easterbrook warned counsel that the court had recently sanctioned a lawyer who did that. <laughs> that seems a bit harsh uh, to have sanctioned someone for that. I, maybe they were a repeat offender. Maybe they didn't change it when they were told. But So he didn't get off to a very good start. Uh, you know, it, as, it, as is his want, Judge Easterbrook chimes in very early in the argument and says, where's your authority for X? And if you don't have a good answer for authority for X, whatever that is, life is not going to be easy for the next 10 to 15 to 20 minutes. And in this case, it was not. Second, counsel could not satisfy the court as to why he proceeded on a substantive due process claim and not under the 14th Amendment and not a Fourth Amendment claim where the complaint alleged separate instances of sexual misconduct by a, a police officer, including touching her over her clothes, and then in another instance, taking her to a secluded area and allegedly threatening her. 
That sure sounds like a Fourth Amendment claim to me, Dan. It's, yeah. I mean, sounded like that to the court. Here we go. Judge Easterbrook pointed out that the Supreme Court of the United States has recently favored enumerated rights. You know, as Judge Easterbrook said, the ones that are in the Constitution over substantive right. rights that arise out of the 14th Amendment. Read Dobbs. Again, that's what Judge, Judge Easterbrook said. Where such claims have not been successful, and specifically in this case, pointed to the right of the people to be secure in their persons, as Judge Easterbrook said, under the Fourth Amendment, as opposed to a substantive right to, of bodily autonomy under the 14th under the 14th Amendment. Bodily autonomy is one of the bases for the, the right to abortion under the, four, under the 14th Amendment. Uh, one of the arguments uh, for, for that right coming from the 14th Amendment is this idea of bodily yeah. autonomy, whereas to be secure in your person, it, it, it's, it's right there in the text. Uh, third, third, counsel for the officer, hmm. we, and, and I, I, this again, this is Judge Easterbrook, refused to understand the distinction between a constitutional right and a fundamental right that would support a claim, and while accepting that the plaintiff may have forfeited the Fourth Amendment claim, nevertheless was disturbed by the alleged conduct, which the court had to take as true at the motion to dismiss stage. As Judge Easterbrook pointed out, we plead claims, not legal theories. Um, interesting. The district court dismissed the plaintiff's claims against both the individual officer and his supervisor, and the plaintiff appealed. Uh the third law advocate who argued was for the, the chief of police, I think it was, and he yes. fared a little bad. He fared a little better, but I guess the court was worn out by that. Uh, this was an extremely rough ride for these for the first two advocates. Dan, tell us about this case. Sure, Pat. And and one of the things I was thinking about is 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 uh, I, I I just think uh, part of Judge Easterbrook's thing is he he doesn't like letters. He likes words. We're generalists, and so right. He likes acronyms. He likes pseudonyms. He doesn't like anything that doesn't have actual additional words that explains it. And uh, it would have been okay if they if they proceeded as Jane Doe as opposed to ZH. He might have been okay. I don't think so. I mean, still, I doubt it in this case. But wow, it was a rough ride. So. Uh, yeah, Pat, and, and, and just to be fair, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I know. I, I know. really feel sorry for these advocates, but it, yeah, it, it, it started off very poorly uh, because they called uh, uh, the first counsel for the appellant, uh, Mr. Cooper, and he had his wasn't there on screen or whatever when it started. It, it didn't sound like this was in person, um, or maybe, maybe it was in some person. of the advocates were, but he wasn't. He was via Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, you know, right out of the gate uh, before uh, Cooper was able to speak, he said, Mr. Cooper, we expect you to be ready when the case is called. And then uh, Cooper opened by saying he doesn't have a lot to say. Uh, he looks to the motion, you know, by example. Um, as you mentioned, the Easterbrook was, was digging right into him. So he got that words out. And then the first question was, did the district court authorize client to proceed anonymously? Uh, the response was, I cannot tell you that. Uh, Easterbrook said, uh, we reviewed and did this court authorize? No. Um, Easterbrook used the rule that said only minors may litigate using initials, but your client's not a minor. Uh, the response was, it was a mistake. I apologize. And then what What uh, you actually heard, it was a sigh from Judge Easterbrook. Um, and then he... Uh, warned the guy 
uh, warned the advocate that immediately uh, that that the the client's name was going to be out there, um, and it was uh, it was revealed during the hearing. And if you go look at this oral argument in the link that you'll have uh, when when Pat posted, um, uh, they uh, her name was Zelie uh, Hess, um, and then like Pat said the the. Uh, what was cited in the brief was Plessy versus Ferguson and uh, the, the use of the N-word for uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall by LBJ. Um, and um, uh, the... Um, Not sure what that had to do with what happened neither. to this woman. I mean, it, it, you know... I don't either. What, what, what Johnson said about Marshall wasn't good either, but it has nothing to do with the election nah. which conduct that occurred here. <laughs> and, and what, what the point was by the advocate, and again, it was, yeah, like it was not clear, but it, it was it, it, the, the standard for this kind of behavior of whether police can be found to be, you know, uh, uh, liable and uh, for these types of situations is whether it shocks the conscience. Um, as Pat, Pat mentioned in this thing, you know, this, this was a multiple, this, this young lady, uh, once was the, uh, the guy used his, I think his elbow or something and, and, uh, uh rubbed against her breast. They rubbed against her butt, 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 buttocks and other, other parts of her body. Um, and then took on this ride where he, where he stopped, he rolled down the window and he asked another police officer if, she, if he wanted to have sex with this lady in, in a forest preserve or something. I mean, it, the, the whole thing is, uh, you know, the, the kind of bizarre, um, the um uh and, and to your point pat you know after uh the, this whole com commentary about lbj and all this other stuff easterbrook said you, you don't need we don't know that you need to concede all that you know the case law of police officers and sexual conduct is under color of law uh there's fine laws about the degrees of sexual assault there's a woodkey case um that uh, uh again is this case that it shocks the conscience. And, and I think the advocate was trying to argue that this shocks the conscience because of the, the crazy behavior and, and, you know, the behavior that was on his, his client. Um, and then uh, Easterbrook raised a case, an Anderson case, uh, that said it made it more difficult. They have to distinguish between sexual assault that's not shocking to the conscience and that's shocking. And... Uh, Again, the advocate tried to argue that this all um, uh, was uh, uh, shocking. Um, the, um, the 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 next thing they turned to Pat, and the, and again, Judge Easterbrook was very clear. He said, "Why are you relying on substantive due process?" And all uh, he mentioned, in fact, the Dobbs case as something that you know the Have you been paying attention to the Supreme Court? They they came out with this case, right? And 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 like you said. This, this whole discussion about why this is not a Fourth Amendment case, uh, again, securing your person and property versus a, a, a substantive due process case. Um, and, and again, Judge Easterbrook. Um, and, the, and the distinction, and again, um, Easterbrook really, I, I don't think was buying it, but the, the distinction that the advocate tried to argue was that she was not in custody. That, And then Judge Easterbrook said, you know, Okay, so you, he went out driving on this drive. Did she feel like she could leave? And, and the response was no, not really, right? Like she, you know, it's a police officer and she didn't know what was going to happen to her. So very, uh, again, 
Um, um, I don't the, think the word custody uh, is in the Fourth Amendment. It's, no, it's secured it's not, your person that's in the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. And then there was, there was, there was, uh, yeah. And then there, there was, there was discussion, um, about Indiana tort notice required and that the, the client, by the time she obtained counsel, it was too late. So again, Easterbrook was asking about why, um, uh, whether the client was pursuing state remedies and if not, why not? Um, that was actually the, a good answer to the question um, because it was too late to. Yeah, it was there's right. A, there is yeah. a there is a six yeah. month or one year tort tort claim that has to be made, and if you yeah. miss the deadline, you're out of luck on the on the tort, tort law claims. Right, Any tort law claims. And then one of the other judges kind of threw a softball and said, "You know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you determine if the allegation shocked the conscience by the totality of the circumstances. You allege that uh, she was falsely imprisoned, taken on a ride." Not feeling free to leave, and I, th I thought he responded well to that. Um, the yeah, justices, um, judges Hamilton and Lee were much more forgiving. Judge, used they to were work not they so were. much. Yeah, and and you mentioned this this thing's not in the real constitution. <laughs> Easterbrook said, uh, 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 "Substantive due process not in the real constitution, but fourth is." And he said, "Remind you of uh, I'll remind you of Dobbs." Uh, we harp on things that are actually there. Why do you want to retreat that something's not there? And then, uh, uh, again, it, 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 uh, 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 that, that pretty much ended the time of Mr. Cooper. And, and uh, he asked a question um, that reminded me of one of my colleagues once that when he asked about the yellow light that went on and uh, Easterbrook responded to him, he said, is that just my time on, uh, do I have time for rebuttal? And Judge Easterbrook uh, looked to Robner and said, that's all the time you have in the world, counsel. And so um, Cooper, attorney Cooper asked how much time he had left and whether it was just his uh, principal argument, he wanted to reserve the rest uh, for rebuttal. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, Easterbrook said, yeah, 37 seconds left. <laughs> and then he ended up revising that at, at some point. You now have 21 seconds and he stuck to it. The guy was mid-sentence. <laughs> time, time is up. You're done. Um, speaking of, of you're done, uh, the appellee got up then and then uh, tried to say that, that uh, Mr. Cooper did not cite. And Judge Easterbrook asked the same question. Why not a Fourth Amendment? Uh, why not a Fourth Amendment claim? And um, the, the, the uh, attorney for the appellee, I'm not, not sure of the arguments that were being made, uh, she said there are a lot of weaknesses in the case. One was that uh, this uh, plaintiff never asked to leave. Um, and, and, and it also said there was nothing to show that, that there was not any time she could have left. I mean, again, I don't know how fast the car's going. I don't know where they're at. But, again, it, it didn't seem like very uh, very responsive. Um, the, uh, and, and Judge Easterbrook, uh, again, so with Terry stops, we don't say unless demand to leave, you're not covered. Like you said, Pat, there's no, uh, no uh, being in custody in the Fourth Amendment anyway. Um, Questions. And again, one of the, one of the, was there probable cause? That's the question. Right. right. And and you know the again the Easterbrook kind of pushed back. This is this was a case on the pleadings, uh, and that Terry, you don't have to put someone in handcuffs. You don't have to ask to leave. Um, the 
um, uh, then then Judge Easterbrook kind of talked about the uh, substantive due process again in the third, ninth, and fifth circuits, and and here um, the uh, again the council has talked about it has to be uh, uh, shock the conscience, um, and Easterbrook said, well, all these cases do shock the conscience, and that they were upheld in the circuits in D.C. Um, the uh, he, he tried to ask about where he draw the line, and again, I don't know. The, the responses were very, very uh, insightful. Um, talked about the incident in the woods and the prostitute, and then uh, she uh, started talking about uh, 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 again uh, some some case law and stuff, and and uh, uh, Judge Easterbrook. Um, uh, she, she said there was no constitutional rights here. Just uh, uh, at one point, he told her to move along if, if that was her best answer. And then he said, uh, we're not asking about constitutional rights. Uh, he said, uh, <laughs> the exact quote, you obviously have not read recent SCOTUS cases, the Supreme Court cases. We are done here. And she tried to respond and he cut her off. And then, like you said, Pat, of the three advocates, the final one uh, got up and uh, was for the for for the chief of police, and um, made pretty good arguments, right? That there was no, not on not on a, a alert of of anything prior acts or anything. So, um, uh, an interesting argument, and 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 uh, like you said, two two of the three really annoyed Judge Easterbrook for sure. He was just not having any of it from any of them, and and. Uh, and uh, like I said, he, he actually shut down the second advocate. He, he said, we are done here. And when she tried to say something, he said, no, we're done. And that, that was it. Yeah, you, so. you better be prepared in knowing the current state of the law. If you're going right. to be in, if you, if you can't, if you draw Judge Easterbrook, uh, because he's going to pillory yeah. you if you don't. He knows where the state of the law is and he expects you to know it too. Right. And all the Seventh Circuit, we've talked about before cases that were uh, decided, you know, could be earlier that day. You better at least be aware that something happened in, in, in whatever's remained to your case because they're going to ask, you know. Yeah. The panels from Some the of them aren't going to be as harsh as he is in our, in our right. argument, but he's certainly yeah, he's, he's much harsher. Yep. Um, all right. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, Country Mutual versus Zook. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 136 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Is there a duty to defend under an umbrella policy where coverage for a lawsuit is excluded under an underlying homeowner's policy? That is the question to be addressed when the Illinois Public Court 5th District decides country mutual insurance company versus zoo. The underlying complaint, which contains some very dis- disturbing allegations, um, uh, proceeded to a jury trial. 
the defendant prevailed, so the issue in the coverage case is only about defense costs, which are no doubt substantial. Among the claims are federal and state law claims of sex trafficking, forced labor, trafficking and servitude, gender violence, involuntary servitude, trafficking in persons, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and negligent infliction of emotional distress. These claims included the following allegations. Quote, Zhu breached this duty with his extreme and outrageous behavior as outlined above, including by issuing death threats, attempting to bribe him, bringing a baseless lawsuit, and threatening his reputation and standing in the community, end quote. Uh, the answer to the question is not that obvious, that umbrella policies do not provide a duty to defend, as was Justice Kate's question as counsel for the insurer conceded, that there, where there was no underlying policy or where the coverage was excluded, the umbrella policy did provide a defense. It's a, an unusual umbrella policy. Most don't work like that. Instead, the argument was that the allegations of the complaint did not allege an occurrence as defined by the umbrella policy as requiring an accident, but then the umbrella policy specifically provides coverage for claims of defamation, malicious prosecution, and the like. The circuit court found that there was no coverage and granted summary judgment to the insurer, and the insured appealed. While the labels of the underlying claim do not define whether a claim is covered, the drafting of the plaintiff does not constrain whether there's coverage, and if one claim is covered, there's coverage for the entire suit. How is there coverage for these kinds of allegations in this complaint? On the other hand, how does not accidentally committing defamation and malicious prosecution when those are intentional torts? Pat, tell us about oral argument in this interesting insurance case. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, and I can't really, I, I have a real hard time understanding this policy. This is very unusual. It very, is the very usual, unusual. very unusual policy. Uh, Justice Cates really struggled with, this is an umbrella policy. It doesn't drop down and provide defense. And counsel for the appellant to the insured said, oh yeah, it does. It's right there. And defense counsel or the counsel for the insurer is like, yeah, pretty much it provides a defense. And then it's, okay. Then there's the definition of occurrence. It says it, something that occurs by accident, which is fortuity, which counsel for the insurer pointed out. And that's what it is. But then it provides coverage for a whole laundry list of intel, intentional torts. And, and I, I, I don't understand how you have an intentional tort in your list of, of things that are covered that then aren't covered uh, when, if they're not by accident, because by definition, they are not fortuitous. It seems to me, and I think this argument was made, that, that this was at least ambiguous. Um, you don't go by the labels, that's true, but the allegation that Dan read, you know, apparently this, this uh, professor, Zhu was a professor at the University of Illinois at Champaign, at, at, at uh, Urbana-Champaign, and he, he um, apparently treated his Chinese students very, very awfully, allegedly. Uh, as, I sa as Dan said, he uh, won at the federal trial um, but in, in January, but the allegation was is he treated these students awfully and all the different allegations that are made uh, and, and wrote things about them and sued them in, uh, in China. Um, the complaint, the underlying complaint is 87 pages of specific allegations of all kinds of conduct. As, as I said, you know, he was, he, uh, he won the trial. So these things didn't occur, but 
the allegations are just horrific. Um, the, but that doesn't determine whether there's coverage or not. And so now you have to look at, okay, what did any of this fall within coverage for under this umbrella policy? There were multi-layer arguments to try to get out of coverage by the, uh, by the insurance company. I, I, they worked with the insurance, the uh, circuit court. I'm not sure if it's going to work with the, uh, with the uh, appellate court. They, they seem to be very, uh, they seem to be very confused as to how this was not covered. But when you read some of the allegations and you read it in its totality, it takes on a character of being in a, uh, takes on a character of being in the nature of intentional conduct that isn't covered. And I think if you look at it as a whole, it's, I think there's a strong argument, obviously persuasive to the circuit court, that this isn't covered. Um, there's a lot of things we, we can't really do justice to it in, in our podcast. They didn't do justice to it. Frankly, the allegations was I saw the complaint and downloaded after hearing the oral argument. Uh, they really didn't do justice to it at the uh, oral argument either, um, how disturbing the allegations were. But an important case to take a look at, even though it's a rather unusual policy, um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Dan, uh, do you have any further thoughts on on this particular case? No, but like you said, it's uh, I've, I've never heard of a policy quite like this, so it'd be interesting. I'd love to take a look at the full policy and just see how it's structured, and so it seems so different than what I'm used to. Yeah, I, I this guy must have paid a pretty premium for coverage that that, that is that expansive, um, allegedly. And we'll, it'll be the part of the reason part of the reason I want to see the opinion is they'll quote more thoroughly from the from the uh, contract of insurance, so get a better right. idea of what's of what's there. Um, so with that, we'll move to our bi for COVID this week, which kind of merges into prediction sure to go wrong. Uh, Indiana Repertory Theater versus Cincinnati. Casualty came down. Dan, tell us about. Sure, and this this was uh, Indiana weighed in like uh, the, the the appellate court, like many, um, like, like most of the courts we've talked about on this show, Pat. And one of the things they found was that uh, as a matter of law, uh, that COVID nineteen uh, does not alter and is not physical loss or damage to property, which is, uh, you know, been. Uh, Kind of the conclusions of the court, but the, this uh, this the decision uh, was very uh, straightforward in, in saying that, and so it's uh, not. What's not notable? What's notable about this opinion is that they the plaintiff had three experts who said that, right. you know, the the, right. the virus is in the air, it's on the surfaces, and so forth, and the court just was like, yeah, it doesn't change the air, it doesn't change the surfaces. It distinguished the cases that, you know, involving cat urine and asbestos and carbon monoxide, because in those circumstances, it made the property uninhabitable, which in this case, not only did it not make the property uninhabitable, as evidenced by the fact that people were in places where there was COVID known to be, like hospitals and such, but also that in this case, they stopped using the property based upon their own decision, not anything else. So there's that. Um, moving yeah. on to our prediction, sure to go wrong, which this was, so we got that one right. Our uh, records yep. now are Dan is 200 and a half, 44 and a half and 11. I am 197 and a half, 47 and a half and 11. So I am, I, I'm a little behind here, but there we are. 
we got Erie versus Gibbs right that we discussed on episode 132. This was the negligent urination case. And apologies, we didn't get a chance to read it. I just saw the result, saw we got it right. Uh, so we'll cover that next week. Um, and then the big decision of the week is uh, Kethrone versus uh, White Castle. And uh, we just discussed that on episode 97 and episode 55. This is the case about when does a claim under the Biometric Information Privacy Act accrue? It accrues every time someone uh, scans their finger or other biometric information so that there are multiple damage, multiple opportunities for each person on each day, as we've talked about, maybe six a day. Clock in, clock out for your first break, clock back in for your first break, clock out for your second break, clock back in for your first break, your second break, and then clock out for the day, potentially as many as six a day uh, per employee per day for however many, for however long, going as five years based upon what happened five in this case. So a long time. And, and, and in this case, the, the, the simple calculation for uh, White Castle, uh, if they're held liable, and again, the, 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 the court pretty much said that this would be disastrous, right, in their uh, the, the majority opinion, uh, but then said that courts can fashion a, an appropriate remedy because it, the, the statute says may instead of shall. But uh, the calculation that I saw uh, in the last day or two was $17 billion for White Castle, which would uh, put them out of business. A billion would be. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw, Pat, but, you know, in the BNSF case that we covered, uh, there's a there's a, a post-trial motion that uh, Seth Lambden brought to my attention when he uh, was getting ready to speak at the insurance law webinar this week. Um, $282 million uh, verdict. The uh, plaintiffs have filed a, a motion for reconsideration saying that the damages are at least a billion with the B. So... This stuff's going to get very expensive very fast for folks that, you know, are, are collecting any biometric information. For, for instances where nobody has ever had their information taken and used improperly yet. And that's what's so frustrating about this is, okay, fine, they violated the statute. Great. So what? Um, really, so what? The whole purpose of these things, because most of this is in the context of employment, is to make sure people are being, you know, to comply with FLSA. So they went from the frying pan into the fire. And uh, maybe they went back, maybe they'd rather have the FLSA claim. Um, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a real, it, it's, it's, it is important to note that this was a 4-3 decision. And at least the, the justice who wrote the opinion, Justice Rochford, was not on the panel, that was not on the court when it was heard. So we've had some panel, right. we've been down some justices on some cases since the changeover in personnel. And they were down not because they didn't hear the case, but because they were on the circ on the dist on the uh, appellate district when it was heard at that district. So they were being recused, not that they didn't hear the case. So then you had so you have justices that did not hear the case voting on the outcome of the case, and in this case having written it. So it's very interesting the procedure that the court follows, the yep. United States Supreme Court, or Supreme Court of the United States would, would have reheard the case with these people now. Well, we're right. going to go through the whole process and have oral argument again. Uh, that's not how it works at the Supreme Court. That's interesting. Um, 
you know, they can certainly listen to the oral argument and, and, and come to their conclusion as they did here. But that's just interesting that this is, uh, this is what happened. So, uh, also, also of, of interesting note, Pat is, is the, is the two remaining Republicans were in dissent and, and chief justice Tice was in dissent. Right. The, the dissent so. was written by justice uh, Overstreet joined by justice, uh, Holder White and justice Tice. Um, so the fourth and fifth district, uh, justices and justice Tice from Cook County, uh, the chief justice. So uh, they, they were in dissent holding that there was just it accrued one time. Uh, so with that, let's do our uh, prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Richards versus Clemens is getting reversed, right, Dan? Reversed, reversed. Uh, ZH versus Garcia is getting reversed. I, I think, think they're so. going to let him plead. They're going to look past the forfeiture and they're going to say, maybe he did something wrong. Maybe he didn't. We don't care about the theory. It's Fourth Amendment. Go deal with it. And then Country right. Mutual versus Zoo, I think that's getting reversed. I think so. I, so, yeah, another – we had one of these a couple of weeks ago, uh, a clean right. sweep of reversals. But I think that's going to happen here too. Which brings us to the rule of the week. I think we're right. Dan, and I, I, think, I think I'm up. Yeah. Um, you are in, in this rule of the week. Again, it's, a, it's, it's one of Pat and I found, and this is something that Pat was listening to a podcast recently, and we've talked about uh, – uh, expert uh, t- testimony in Illinois and its standard. We've talked about uh, some of that in the past. Uh, this is about peer review. And, and why don't you tell us, Pat, about peer review in the article that you found? So I listened to a podcast called Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. Russ Roberts is a fellow at the uh, Hoover Institution and the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. He is a University of Chicago educated economist. Uh, and he hosts this podcast. It's very interesting. He covers issues well beyond economics, a uh, whole range of issues. Very interesting podcast, and I, I do recommend it to you. Uh, he he uh, spoke with a fellow named Adam Mastriano, who has a sub stack. Uh, and Mastriano is a, and I'm, let me get this right, he is a Princeton-educated Rhodes Scholar with a PhD from Harvard doing his postdoc at Columbia. In other words, he's attended th- a third of the Ivies plus Oxford. So not a, uh, not a person outside of the mainstream of academia. Uh, but he has decided that he is not going to publish in peer-reviewed articles, peer-reviewed jur- journals anymore. And that his view is, is that the peer-reviewed process is entirely broken. He wrote an essay on his Substack in December that calls, that, that essentially articulates that the peer-reviewed process is fundamentally broken. So what is the peer review process? I, like I think many people, thought that when a a paper gets reviewed, there's actual attempts to reproduce the findings of the the, uh, author. And that apparently is not what occurs. The referees rarely, if ever, do something along those lines. They basically read it to make sure it makes sense, and then it gets reviewed, then it gets published, which really calls into question whether science is occurring. And that, that has a giant impact a giant impact on expert testimony because the, under Daubert, the, uh, the, uh, one of the factors is, is, he, is the expert relying upon peer-reviewed uh, literature. And if the peer-reviewed literature isn't reliable because they're not actually doing science, that's a real problem. Now, how you get at that's a different question, and this is going to be a, 
topic of my column this week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. But it's it really calls into question what is the project of modern science? Now, this project or this process of peer review did not begin until after World War II when governments got substantially involved in funding science. Prior to that, science was a far more iterative process than it is now. Uh, and the reason why peer review was developed was in order for governments to you know, believe that they were actually getting bang for their buck. Turns out, not so much. And he provides, Mastriano does in his examples, or in his essay, some examples of, of the problems with the peer review process. One final thing, uh, I, I found this amazing. Albert Einstein had one peer-reviewed article in his, in his, in his career, you know, a noted scientist. Uh, he, had it, he withdrew it because he didn't want it peer-reviewed. He published it in a different journal. Uh, peer review was anathema to Einstein, and it, it seems that uh, he may have had some justification. So a very interesting issue to keep an eye on. Uh, we'll figure out, I think we'll hear a lot more about this, about whether what Mastriano is saying is true. Um, and, and go, and go from there. So with that, Dan, any, anything to add, add on this? So with that, we will take our leave. We thank everybody for joining us this week on the podium and panel podcast. We'll see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.